This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit ChristendomRestored.com to read more articles. The title of this article is The Two Kingdoms Doctrine's Schizophrenic Philosophy of History Written by Bojidar Marinoff, July 8, 2015 In the wake of the Supreme Court's decision on sodomite marriage, my Facebook news feed was filled with quite a few statements by known and unknown important and unimportant persons and institutions who wanted to inform the world what they thought of it. One institution, though, was missing from that list, and of what I know, there is still no official statement, neither from the institution as a whole, nor from any individual working for it, on the SCOTUS's ruling, the Westminster Seminary in Escondido, California, the seedbed of the modern Two Kingdoms theology, or rather, the Two Kingdoms rhetoric. I, for one, would be really interested in such formal statement. Why? Well, because there is an element of the Two Kingdoms rhetoric that has been of special interest to me, and I have always wanted to understand it and see it developed by its adherence to its logical end. That element is the view of history and historical change, and is best described in the introduction to Van Drunen's book, Living in God's Two Kingdoms. Quote, According to the Two Kingdoms doctrine, God is not redeeming the cultural activities and institutions of this world, but is preserving them through the covenant He made with all living creatures through Noah in Genesis 8.20-9.17. So, there are two principles at work when it comes to the dynamics of history, according to this statement. One is limited only to the Church and the individual Christians, as far as only their non-cultural activities are concerned, redemption, that is, a change, gradual or instant, from a state of wickedness and curse to a state of righteousness and blessing. The other is broader and includes all unbelievers and all cultural endeavors of all men, believers and unbelievers. Preservation, that is, keeping things in a state that is neither redeemed nor wicked. The most important thing, of course, which a Reformed Christian would notice in this statement is that, from a Reformed perspective, this is a declaration of the moral neutrality of the cultural endeavors of man. If man is a moral creature in all the aspects of his being, as made in God's image, and if sin has permeated all the aspects of man's nature, total depravity, then man's cultural activities and institutions are just as corrupt and depraved as man himself. If we accept as valid Henry Van Til's dictum, that, quote, culture is religion externalized, end quote, then man's cultural activities and institutions, just as much as his individual character and personal piety, are shaped by his religion. Clearly, then, if man's individual character and personal piety can be redeemed, that is, harmonized with the demands of the gospel, obviously a culture that was lost must be also capable of being redeemed, that is, harmonized with the demands of gospel. If God is not redeeming it, then culture must not be under the curse of sin, and therefore it is morally neutral, that is, free of the standards for good and evil. Van Drunen understands this clear logical conclusion of his position, so he is trying to use obfuscation to avoid the charge of moral neutrality. Quote, This kingdom is in no sense a realm of moral neutrality or autonomy, God makes its institutions and activities honorable, though only for temporary and provisional purposes. End quote. 
But moral neutrality is not about honorable and dishonorable. It's about good and evil. Honor means nothing when it comes to moral standards. Unless, of course, it is taken to mean good, in which case he would have used the word good as a more logical choice. The obfuscation is quite obvious. He denies he makes culture morally neutral, but then he uses a morally neutral word to describe it. Instead of the obvious, logical alternative, the morally charged words of good and evil. Why? Obviously, because if he says that culture can be either good or evil, he will have no explanation why culture shouldn't be redeemed. And even worse than that, since the culture of unredeemed and depraved men is by nature unredeemed and depraved, Van Drunen will have a hard time explaining what exactly is it that God is preserving and why. So the only way for Van Drunen to hope to sell his doctrine to Reformed Christians is to keep speaking of culture in morally neutral terms while at the same time denying the obvious conclusion of its moral neutrality. It's all rhetoric. A Theology of Historical Stagnation The conclusion about the moral neutrality of culture inherent in the two kingdoms' rhetoric is the most important one. But there's another ramification. The notion of God redeeming his people while preserving the world around them in the same state makes history meaningless. When it comes to the individual life and character of a man, we as Christians consider it meaningless to believe that it is possible for a man to be redeemed and justified and sanctified and not be changed in his outward actions and his conduct. We expect a man's conduct to become religion externalized. And since his religious views were redeemed, we expect his conduct to be redeemed as well. In the same way, how is it possible for God's people to be redeemed and yet never be able to apply that redemption to the world around them, so that the changed state of the world becomes a testimony to the power of the gospel in their lives? As the gospel spreads throughout the earth and God brings more and more people to himself, what is that logic that will declare that the cultural actions and institutions of mankind will remain the same? being simply preserved, meaning that they will never manifest the inward change in God's redeemed people. If the power and the victory of the gospel remain locked within men's hearts and are never expressed in the historical dynamics of their culture and institutions, then history doesn't reveal the power and the victory of the gospel. There would be nothing in history to which unbelievers can look up to and see how God has been working in redeeming a people to himself. If history doesn't reveal the power and victory of the gospel, then history either has no meaning at all, or has another meaning, different and rival to that of, of the gospel. At best, history is stagnant. It doesn't indicate any movement in any direction, either to confirm or to negate the gospel. In most cases, the supporters of the Two Kingdoms doctrine actually believe history goes from better to worse. And that is, history is able to overcome and defeat the growth of the gospel when it comes to the practical applications of it. History is the development of man's civilization over time, and it is not morally neutral. It's the change, over time, in man's cultural actions and institutions, conditioned by man's spiritual growth or apostasy. When we compare two historical periods, this is what we are looking at. How did the cultures of the two historical periods compare? Then, from this comparison, we are making our conclusions about the flow and direction, and the meaning and testimony of history. The Bible is full of such examples. God spoke to the Israelites multiple times in the Bible, showing them the difference between their age and ages past, demonstrating how their obedience or disobedience led to cultural improvement or decay. Prophecies about the future promise the same things. The advance of the gospel leads to the growth of the kingdom of God on earth. 
and the growth of the kingdom of God is manifested visibly in the restoration of man's culture and institutions on earth before the second coming of Christ. Until, as the scripture promises, quote, all his enemies are made his footstool, end quote, Hebrews 1, 13, end quote, all things are subjected to him, end quote, 1 Corinthians 15, 28. All millennialists and premillennialists often object to the charge that their systems destroy the meaning of history. But objections to the contrary, the inevitable conclusion is that, indeed, any systems that denies cultural growth in history as a result of the growth of the gospel, by necessity, destroys the meaning of history. The meaninglessness of history is very well described in that famous quote by Meredith Klein from an article where he attacks Christian Reconstruction for many things. Among them, the postmillennial belief that history is the manifestation of the victory of God's special grace on earth. Quote, and meanwhile, the common grace order must run its course within the uncertainties of the mutually conditioning principles of common grace and common curse, prosperity and adversity being experienced in a manner largely unpredictable because of the inscrutable sovereignty of the divine will that dispenses them in mysterious wisdom, end quote. Klein continues by stating categorically, no judgment in history based on obedience or disobedience. Why? Because that would destroy the principle of, quote, commonness, end quote, as opposed to the principle of special grace, that is, redemption. Quote, For if the principle of synchronizing a people's enjoyment of temporal prosperity with the measure of godliness they exhibit were to be administered universally, no place would be left for the operation of a principle of commonness in the bestowing of temporal benefits on believers and unbelievers, end quote. Translated to common language, it means, quote, History can't be a testimony to the power, and therefore to the blessings, of the gospel. Redemption is only a side issue to it. History is not a revelation of Jesus Christ and his ministry, end quote. Commonness? No, war. This, of course, runs contrary to the biblical view of history, which describes history's most important characteristic to be not the, quote, commonness, end quote, between men and their cultures, but the war between the two seeds. The world is a wheat field in which some tares were sown, Matthew 13, 24 through 30, and 36 through 43, and with time the seeds grow to maturity, and it becomes obvious which plants grow, belong to which seed. Covenant keepers will grow in redemption and sanctification and will be blessed. Covenant breakers will grow in evil and depravity and will be cursed. And this blessing and curse will become more and more visible in the culture, in the growing redemption of all cultural activities and institutions. Granted, the curve won't be smooth, and some generations of Christians, like ours, may despise the law of God and reject the idea of the victory of the gospel of Christ. Such temporary apostasy will lead to temporary stagnation and maybe even downward slope for culture. But in the long term, history will demonstrate more and more the superiority of the gospel in the redemption of mankind's cultural activities and institutions. The court of history, therefore, has been busy handing down verdicts, verdicts which bless and encourage and empower covenant keepers and curse and discourage and weaken covenant breakers. Contrary to Klein and Van Drunen, redemption is active and operational, not only for men's individual souls and their churches, but for their cultures as well. 
families, businesses, scientific and technological endeavors, education and professional activities, their law systems, and political establishments, etc., etc. Culture is religion externalized, and the curse that pagan religions brought into the world is being now replaced by the blessings of the gospel in every area of life, including culture. And if you want to understand the very foundation of the two kingdoms' rhetoric, it is this. There is no such court of history. Not for the culture and for the human institutions, at least. But then, how did that, quote, preservation, end quote, work in the SCOTUS's decision? Van Drunen and the Two Kingdoms group have no answer. Any answer will have to either declare that the court's decision was morally neutral or that culture is subject to sin and therefore to redemption. The first would expose the real religion of the Westminster West. The second would destroy their doctrine of the, quote, commonness, end quote, of culture. Silence seems to be the most acceptable option. Albert Moeller's Strange Response But there was another public statement, a statement which proves again that whenever the proponents of the two kingdoms theory are not mindful of their words, or whenever it suits them politically, they naturally speak contrary to it. Rush Dooney described the same phenomenon in his article, quote, Covert Theonomists, end quote. The same phenomenon can be detected every Christmas, if not every Sunday service, when officially premillennial or amillennial churches sing hymns with openly postmillennial content. For all the blabber that premillennialism or amillennialism are the, quote, most natural reading of Scripture, end quote. In the final account, premillennialists and amillennialists quite naturally resort to postmillennial sentiments, and anti-theonomists resort to theonomic rhetoric. This time, the inconsistency comes from Albert Moeller, professedly premillennial and two kingdoms in his views. I have written several articles exposing the intellectual schizophrenia in Moeller's views, so I am not surprised to see him going again, naturally, against his own professed theology. Here are his words, in response to the decision of the Supreme Court concerning sodomite, quote, marriages, end quote. Quote, But the Supreme Court, like every human institution and individual, will eventually face two higher courts. The first is the court of history, which will render a judgment that I believe will embarrass this court and reveal its dangerous trajectory. The precedents and arguments set forth in this decision cannot be limited to the right of same-sex couples to marry. If individual autonomy and equal protection mean that same-sex couples cannot be denied what is now defined as a fundamental right of marriage, then others will arrive to make the same argument. This court will find itself in a trap of its own making, and one that will bring great harm to this nation and its families. End quote. So the quote, court of history, end quote, is it? And it's not just for individuals, but for institutions also? Moeller believes that there will be some force, some operational principle in the world that renders judgment in history on institutions. He doesn't explain how that works with his eschatology of premillennialism, which by default postpones judgment to the end of history. He doesn't explain how it works with his two kingdoms doctrine, which argues for the principle of, quote, commonness, end quote, in the culture, which by default rejects the concept of redemption, being applied to man's cultural activities and institutions, and argues for, quote, preservation, end quote, rather than redemption. I, of course, 
heartily agree with Moeller about the, quote, court of history, end quote, that has always been at the heart of covenant theology, that God uses covenant sanctions, blessings and cursings, in history to judge nations and their cultures and institutions for their obedience or disobedience to God's law. The, quote, court of history, end quote, is actually God's court, God's sovereign judgments in history. The nation, culture, or institution who obey God's law will be blessed with temporal blessings and more cultural power in history, and they will succeed in anything they undertake. The nation, culture, or institution who disobey God's law will experience temporal curses and will become increasingly impotent in their cultural endeavors, thwarted in their plans and undertakings. It is in this mechanism of covenantal sanctions in history that history finds its meaning, and it, through this, quote, court of history, end quote, that the gospel is being testified for and redemption is being brought to the nations. It is through this process of more cultural power to covenant keepers and more cultural impotence to covenant breakers that redemption is brought to an earth that is ravaged by mankind's depravity. It is through this process of, quote, making his blessings flow far as the curse is found, end quote, that God answers the prayer of his saints, quote, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, end quote. At the end of history, all cultures will be redeemed through this process of covenant sanctions in history, because in their growth to maturity, believers will become more and more successful, and unbelievers more and more impotent. At the end, even if there are unbelievers remaining in the world, they will be powerless to have any influence on the cultures of the world whatsoever. What has previously been the, quote, kingdoms of this world, end quote, will become the kingdom of Christ. Thus, all will be made subject to Him, because the whole earth, in its laws and cultural practices, will be a reflection of God's character, which is nothing less than God's moral character encoded into ethical standards. My agreement with Muller's faith in the inevitable ver verdict of the, quote, court of history, end quote, is based on and is in full agreement with my theonomic postmillennialism. The very notion of a transcendent, quote, court of history, end quote, which judges, in history, the actions of cultural entities and civil institutions, according to a transcendent moral standard, is consistently theonomic and postmillennial. It can't be premillennial or amillennial, for it presupposes positive, optimistic expectations of history. How can the wicked be judged and thwarted in history, and the righteous blessed and empowered, and yet history remain stagnant or increasingly evil? It can't be anti-theonomic, for that would presuppose that God judges cultures and institutions based on a standard different than God's law. It can't be consistent with the Two Kingdoms doctrine, for it presupposes that cultures and government institutions, like the Supreme Court, are under the requirements of the law of God. And thus the very notion of, quote, common grace, end quote, or, quote, natural law, end quote, as their operational ethics is destroyed. For a person to be consistent, he can't believe in a, quote, court of history, end quote, unless he assumes a theology of covenantal, theonomic, postmillennialism. But how is Moeller, a premillennial, anti-theonomic, two kingdoms professor, able to use the phrase, quote, the court of history, end quote? What is the possible meaning of that phrase in his professed theological position? Does he mean historical judgment in the biblical sense 
as expressed in many biblical passages like Deuteronomy 28 or Psalm 37, the sort of historical judgment that makes the wicked destroy themselves, thwarts their plans, topples down their kingdoms, and establishes the reign of their enemies, that is, the covenant people of God. If he means that, he has betrayed his professed theology, for his theology doesn't allow for such judgment in history. Remember, there is no redemption of culture in history, and therefore there is no judgment of culture in history. Culture is controlled by common grace and, quote, natural law, end quote. And the two kingdoms doctrine allows for neither common grace nor, quote, natural law, end quote, to force any covenantal separation within history. If, in history, the wicked are effectively destroyed or thwarted in their cultural agenda, and the righteous are made victorious by the victory of the, their cultural agenda in accordance with the gospel, then that will be a redemption of culture from the darkness of wickedness to the light of the gospel. But just a few days ago, Moeller himself doubled down on his two kingdoms doctrine by declaring that there is no such thing as redemption of culture in the Bible. So obviously, the biblical meaning of, quote, court of history, end quote, is excluded. Unless we assume that Moeller's is a very heavy case of intellectual schizophrenia, so heavy that he himself can severely contradict himself within the course of two days and not notice it. So what else could that, quote, court of history, end quote, be, then? Blessings for the wicked, curses for the righteous. Pay attention to Moeller's language when he describes the working of that, quote, court of history, end quote, he envisions. Quote, the court of history, which will render a judgment that I believe will embarrass this court and reveal its dangerous trajectory, dot, 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 this court will find itself in a trap of its own making, and one that will bring great harm to this nation and its families. End quote. So, there will be consequences in history, but they will be only in quote, revealing the dangerous trajectory end quote, of the Supreme Court. When that revelation happens, the court will be quote, embarrassed, end quote, and it will find itself in a trap of its own making. In the final account, however, those who will suffer because of the Supreme Court's decision will be this nation and its families, not the court itself. The assumption here is that the Supreme Court is oblivious to the real long-term effects of their own decision, that when those long-term effects come, they won't be expected by the Supreme Justices, and will, quote, embarrass, end quote, them. So oblivious is the Supreme Court that their decision is in fact setting a, quote, trap, end quote, for themselves. Normally, a trap is not set for those who expect a trap. Moeller can see what's coming, but the judges don't but they will see it when it comes and understand the harm of what they've done. At the very bottom, this assumption boils down to faith in the good will and ethical character of the judges. If Moeller believes that the judges will be, quote, embarrassed, end quote, by the results of what they have created, he must believe that the judges have the same moral standard as he does, in order for them to give the consequences the same moral assessment as he does. Here is the same faith in the, quote, commonness, end quote, between believers and unbelievers, that Meredith Klein and Van Drunen insist on, the, quote, natural law, end quote, of the two kingdoms doctrine, which both believers and unbelievers acknowledge and agree on, the shared ethical ground on which no one disagrees, and therefore can be the ethical and judicial foundation for the, quote, common kingdom, end quote. The cosmic battle between Christ and Satan, and between their followers, is only in the realm of the personal salvation of Christians, 
and maybe also their personal ethics, as long as we keep it separate from their cultural endeavors. When it comes to the culture, or to the political realm, we are get along just fine, having the same principles of ethical and judicial assessment of reality, quote, natural law, end quote. A court of anti-Christian perverts would agree in its assessment of re- reality and practical results with a Christian preacher. So from Muller's words, he expects Elena Kagan, for example, to be, quote, embarrassed, end quote, when it becomes obvious that the court's decision has opened the door to the legalization of polygamy, pedophilia, or bestiality, or to the destruction of the families? Because, you know, she would agree with Moeller about the ethical monstrosity of these things, right? How reasonable is it to believe such a thing? How reasonable is it to believe that the Supreme Court justices, who voted for the legalization of sodomite, quote, marriage, end quote, don't actually realize where it is heading and what the consequences will be? And even more important, how reasonable is it to believe that unregenerate, anti-Christian perverts would have moral scruples and would be, quote, embarrassed, end quote, or feel like being, quote, caught in a trap, end quote, by the consequences of their decision? How reasonable is it to expect that they will have the same moral assessment of these consequences as Moeller does? It isn't reasonable at all. It contradicts the principle of, quote, total depravity, end quote that is at the foundation of Reformed soteriology. In order for Moeller to believe that a group of moral perverts will be able to give the same moral assessment of reality as that of Christians, he has to abandon Reformed theology. This is what the two kingdoms' rhetoric is, covert Arminianism, dressed in Calvinistic verbiage. In Moeller's view of history, based on his two kingdoms' doctrine, there is really no, quote, court of history, end quote, for the wicked. The, quote, embarrassment, end quote, and the, quote, trap, end quote, he imagines for the justices who voted for sodomite, quote, marriage, end quote, will actually be their victory and vindication in history. They won't look at the destruction they have created and say, quote, oops, we were wrong, and we did wrong, and the results are embarrassing for us, end quote. They will say, quote, great, this is exactly what we wanted to create, a pagan culture ruled by pagan laws. We wanted to destroy this nation and its families and we were able to achieve it. History has judged us right. End quote. In Muller's theology, therefore, blessings in history are reserved for the wicked. What about the cursings? Well, he says it. They are reserved for the nation, a majority against the court's ruling, and for its families. Blessings for the wicked, curse for the righteous. This is Muller's view of history, and he has no hope in history to offer. The culture can never be redeemed or Christianized, but it can become more pagan obviously. A bugle with an indistinct sound. But why so much ado about the philosophy of history? Isn't it more important to, quote, preach the gospel, end quote, instead of worrying about the direction of historical events? The reason has been pointed out many times by postmillennial authors. The philosophy of history of a man or a group of people determines his actions. His expectations of the future whether optimistic or pessimistic, will determine how and whether he will invest his time in important, long-term, culture-changing projects, or will limit his investment of time and effort to short-term activities of immediate results. These expectations of the future will affect his endeavors in his family, his business, his political participation, etc. The connection between a man's philosophy of history 
and his actions is so obvious, it hardly needs to be stressed over and over again. And yet, as obvious it is, it is not so obvious to premillennial and amillennial seminary professors. Some are so determined to not see it that they will twist even the simplest rules of logic or ignore the obvious historical lessons to deny such connection. Like Moeller himself, who recently declared that postmillennialism was what led to the rise of the German military state and then Nazism. The truth is, the churches in Germany at the time were all premillennial or amillennial. Postmillennialism in the church produced the Scottish Kirk Covenant, the Puritan and the Glorious Revolutions in England, the American colonies, and the American Revolution. Moeller is either completely ignorant about history or willing to lie about it to support his thesis. Our expectations about history are supposed to be the sound of the bugle, giving us a clear idea where we are going so that we prepare for battle. But the two kingdoms doctrines gives no such clear sound. It either views history as stagnant, God is only, quote, preserving, end quote, culture, not redeeming it, or it assumes a downward slope in history. It denies any connection between the spreading of the gospel and the course of history, thus making history meaningless as far as the gospel is concerned. Even when its adherents declare that Christians must, quote, participate in the culture, end quote, and that, quote, the culture will be different when Christians participate, end quote, in it, it still denies that any such participation can produce any real value in the culture, except for isolated good works here and there. And when they speak about the, quote, court of history, end quote, that, quote, court, quote, only brings blessings and more power to the wicked in history, and more disappointment and curse on the righteous. If there's a sound coming from the two kingdoms bugle, it is very clearly a sound of, de of defeat and hopelessness when it comes to history. Conclusion The Scotus's ruling didn't come in a vacuum. The Supreme Court justices know very well the cultural landscape, and they know what they can get away with. They know that despite the overwhelming numbers of Christians in the U.S., the Christian community is culturally crippled and impotent. They know that the Christian response will be passive and weak, and therefore the court will get away with anything they rule against the Christian religion. On the other hand, the justices know that the Sodomites, a tiny minority, have and will have strong cultural influence. The Christian impotence is self-inflicted. It is the product of several generations of systematic cultural vasectomy of the church, administered by its pastors and seminary professors. A cultural vasectomy based on theologies which divorce history from the gospel and make history meaningless. It is a vasectomy which bars Christians from bringing the redemption of Jesus Christ to the cultural arena, all in the name of the mirage of, quote, natural law, end quote, as different from the law of God which separates between covenant keepers and covenant breakers. A vasectomy which denies that the driving force behind history is the war between the two seeds and declares that culture is a morally neutral shared ground between believers and unbelievers. In the final account, the state takes over, reinterprets, quote, natural law, end quote, and starts forcing its godless dictates on Christians. And Christians have nothing to oppose except empty declarations. That the Westminster Seminary in Escondido wouldn't respond to the court's ruling was to be expected. Their philosophy of history, quote, God only preserves institutions, end quote, can't explain change in history. On the other hand, when Albert Moeller decided to respond, his response was a confused garble, 
which either contradicts his own theology or declares the victory of the wicked in history and the defeat of the righteous. Quote, blessings for the wicked, cursings for the righteous, end quote. It is these bugles with indistinct sounds that have turned the church in America into a befuddled, culturally impotent mass. Some time ago, Albert Moeller warned that one danger of Christians trying to redeem the culture or the civil institutions is that Christians tend to be incompetent when it comes to civil government and social problems. He is right. But Moeller himself and others with the same theology are at the root of the problem. Christians are incompetent because their teachers have made them so by preaching doctrines of defeat and cultural retreat. Intellectual schizophrenia in preaching inevitably produces intellectual schizophrenics. And intellectual schizophrenics will always lose the cultural war. Therefore, the solution to the court's ruling must start from the very reason for the mess we are in. Purge the pulpits of all preachers and teachers who have taught that there can be no redemption in the culture. As long as we allow them to control our pulpits, we will get more of the same. That is, we will have the enemies of God control our culture until all Christian influence is destroyed and we leave a world of despair to our children. This audio version of the Two Kingdoms Doctrine's Schizophrenic Philosophy of History, written by Bojidar Marinov, has been produced by Reconstructionist Radio and narrated by Jason Sanchez. Please visit www.christendomrestored.com to read this article and many more.